Today's scripture reading is select passages from Exodus 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstone, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish throughout the land of Egypt, such as never has been before or ever will be again. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you, and it is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, they must select an animal of the flocks according to their father's families, one per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a one-year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animal at, at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hands. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass throughout the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go, worship the Lord, as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds, as you have asked, and leave, and also bless me. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we are all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their cloths on their shoulders. And the Israelites acted on Moses' word, and, the and asked the Egyptians for gold and silver items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them whatever they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites traveled from Ramses to Succoth. About 600,000 able-bodied men 
on foot along with their families. A mixed crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. The people baked the dough they had brought out of Egypt into unleavened loaves since they had no yeast. For when they were driven out of Egypt, they could not delay and not prepared provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that same day, all the Lord's military divisions went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. This same night is in honor of the Lord, a night vigil for all the Israelites throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner may eat it, but any slave a man has purchased may eat it after you have circumcised him. A temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat the Passover. It is to be eaten in one house. You may not take any of the meat outside the house, and you may not break any of its bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. If an alien resides among you and wants to observe the Lord's Passover, every male in his household must be circumcised, and then he may participate. He will become like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat. The same law will apply both to the native and the alien who resides among you. This is the word of the Lord. So if you haven't opened your Bibles to Exodus 11, please do so. Uh, In this passage this morning, uh, we've arrived at the climax of the plague narrative in Exodus, the Passover. Uh, Just a small little passage. You might have heard of it before. You know, just something in the Bible that people come across once in a while. Uh, But no, the Passover is one of the most significant moments in Scripture, whether Old Testament or New Testament. It truly is one of those history-changing, world-altering moments that really sets the trajectory and the theme of Scripture moving forward. It is such a big topic that we're actually going to spend two weeks on it. And so this morning, we're going to spend time reflecting on the Passover as an event. And next week, we're going to look at Passover as remembrance and what Israel was to do and what the significant is for us today. And so the the title of my message this morning is Blood on the Door. And when we talk about the topic of God's judgment, my guess is that you have some thoughts and perhaps some questions, perhaps some wrestles. To talk about God's judgment certainly stirs some things in us, probably a complex layer of emotions depending on your experience. Certain questions and tensions sort of pop into our mind as we, especially for those who would say they believe in God, how do we reconcile the idea of God's judgment with the idea of God being gracious and merciful and loving? Because on paper, doesn't it seem like those two things are contradictory or at least competing? How how can a God of mercy and love be a God who also judges? And then there's the tension of, isn't there in some way, judgment and justice are good, and so are mercy and grace. So how do these two competing goods work together? And so there can be tension. There can be questions. And here's the challenge. When we try to relieve the tension, so many ways we go sideways. So many ways that things can get ugly and awkward. So for instance, in the church... There are those, sadly, 
who want to relieve the tension this way. People abuse the love and mercy and grace of God, so we got to hammer the judgment of God. People need to know God is a God who judges, and so they will hurl the judgment of God at people like weapons. And there is a self-righteousness that can come out when that is how our hearts are formed. Can, can people abuse the grace and mercy and love of God? Absolutely. But make no mistake, when we try to imbalance the tension the other way, people who like to hurl the judgment of God and the justice of God at people, if you scratch the surface, here's what you're going to find. Maybe not all the time, but you're going to find quite often. People who are trying to cover their own fear of judgment. People who have bought into the belief that if I'm good enough, if I do enough, if I perform well enough, then I can escape God's judgment. And it's convenient if I throw the judgment of God at other people, it sort of distracts the fact that I'm afraid I don't know if I'm doing good enough. There's a deep self-righteousness that sets in when we imbalance one way. Now, it may, also, it may not be exactly that. Another dynamic is oftentimes when we throw the judgment of God around like a weapon, oftentimes it betrays the fact that we're just angry, we can't control the world. Like there's evil, there's injustice, and it feels like it's out of control, and boy, as hard as I try to keep it away from me and my life and my family, to, to, to see that my culture doesn't give into it and I can't, boy, I just start getting angry. And it's easy in those moments to just start laying down the judgment of God on people. But if we go the other way and we recognize, hey, people have abused the judgment and justice of God, and that has turned people off from faith, that has condemned people, and we start to turn the volume down on it because, boy, we don't want to be like those people, right? But what happens when we turn down the volume and the evil and the sin and the oppression and the injustice come crashing in? What do you do then? What happens when your God is not big enough to deal with the evil in the world? What happens when your talk of God is so sentimental that when people hear you talk, they go, what? why would I ever want to worship that God? It seems as if that God doesn't care about the evil and the suffering and oppression in the world. And so friends, if we try to eliminate the tension, things go sideways very quickly. And look, even if we want to throw the whole thing out, I mean, look, look, look at in our culture. You could probably see this even in the most extreme in our culture. Is it not true that our culture is like a judgment-free zone in some ways? Like, I don't want to be judged. Expressive individualism. I'm going to define my own identity. I'm going to define my own truth. I'm going to define how I'm going to live my life. And nobody's going to tell me different. And so on this one hand, no judgment. But let me also give you two words. Cancel culture. Like we are one of the most judgmental cultures in history. Like we will write people off and try to wreck their world just because they said something on Twitter we didn't like. So when we've pushed extreme in one way, we push extreme in the other way. Not just tension, but outright contradiction. These are the dynamics, friends, when we try to solve the tension between God's judgment and his mercy on our own. Look, even if you are spiritually mature in these ways, and you have been shaped by scripture in these ways, there's still tension. There's still difficulty. The tension of wanting God to deal with evil and also wanting God to save sinners. Like, we should want both of those things, and sometimes it's hard to hold those two things together. 
So here's what I want us to do. Regardless of where you feel the tension on this topic, just for the next few minutes, just be honest about it. Like, just acknowledge that it's there. Take a moment to just mentally and emotionally go, yeah, I feel tension and here's the way it is. Here's the way that I tend to lean if you lean one way or the other. Here are the problems. Here are the questions that I have. I just want us to be honest about it because the Passover narrative doesn't relieve the tension, doesn't doesn't call, call us to just kind of put it in the background. No, it actually holds it up for us and in some ways actually ratchets up the tension. But here's what we're going to find. The Passover narrative is going to show us that God's judgment and justice and his mercy and grace are not competing. They're not contradicting. They're actually standing hand in hand as twin displays of his glory. And here's the main point from this passage for us this morning. Here's what the Passover narrative declares to us. Through judgment, God brings redemption. It's through judgment, God brings redemption redemption. So last week, Pastor Paul walked us through the first nine signs or plagues that the Lord was inflicting upon Egypt. And each of these plagues, each of these signs, the Lord, Yahweh, was showing Egypt, showing Pharaoh, and showing Israel that he is the sovereign creator over all things, that he controls nature, that he controls the forces, whether they be of physics or of animal behavior. He, he controls the sun, whether it be light or dark. God was showing, controls the weather. God was showing who, in fact, who indeed was Lord. And all of this was to bring Pharaoh to a place of submission that he would let Israel go. But time and time and time again, Pharaoh ref- refused. You know, at times he showed remorse. At times it seemed like he was going to get there. But when the rubber met the road, time and time again, he hardened his heart. Such that after the ninth plague of darkness, here's what Pharaoh says to Moses. He tells him to get out of my face. He says, if I ever see your face again, you're going to die. This was a big deal because prophets of God had diplomatic immunity before kings. And so for Pharaoh to start threatening Moses' life showed just how hard his heart had become. He was mad at Yahweh and he was going to take it out on Moses. So the Lord declares one final plague. In chapter 11, verses 1 and then 4 through 7, this is what the Lord tells Moses to declare to Pharaoh. I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the servant girl who's at the grindstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as, was, as never was before or ever will be again. So look, the first nine plagues were powerful displays of God's power. They, they made it clear that Yahweh was the Lord. But this, this final plague, this final sign, this final act of judgment took it to another level. God was going to strike down every firstborn son in Egypt from the most powerful man right down to the lowliest person, right down to the livestock. Total and complete and comprehensive judgment on Egypt. Now, here's a question for us. Why 
targeted judgment on the firstborn son? Why didn't God just take Pharaoh out? Why didn't God just wipe out the entire nation of Egypt? I mean, there are options that God, he's a sovereign creator of, of, of all things. He had some options here. Why a targeted judgment on the firstborn son of Egypt? Well, multiple reasons for this. First, remember what the Lord has been saying throughout the book of Exodus, why he does what he does. So that Israel, so that Pharaoh, and so that all of Egypt would know he is the Lord. God wasn't just judging Egypt and judging Pharaoh and then calling it a day. No, he was declaring something. He was putting, on, putting something on display, who he was. And so Pharaoh needed to see full well, Egypt needed to see full well that, that, that Yahweh was the Lord. Also, remember what the great sin of Egypt against Israel was. As sinful as it was for Egypt to hold Israel in slavery, that isn't the worst sin. Remember what we saw in the first two chapters. Pharaoh had commanded the firstborn, or the sons, not just the firstborn, but the sons of Israel to be killed. And so God was exercising his judgment and his justice on Egypt. Egypt was reaping what they sowed. The command of Pharaoh and then the follow-through of the people of Egypt to kill the sons of Israel was now being revisited on them. In a similar vein, God calls Israel his firstborn son, the entire nation, his firstborn son in Exodus 4.23. And he warns Pharaoh, you let my firstborn son go or I'm coming for your firstborn sons. Egypt was reaping what they sowed. Third, and this really cuts to the heart, the death of the firstborn was a judgment that cut to a particular depth. You see, the firstborn son represented the heritage and the bloodline of a family, really the family's hopes and dreams. And so to judge the firstborn son was to judge the family. At best, it was to say, your family line is in danger. It is doubtful whether you are going to continue or not unless something changes. That was the best case scenario. Worst case scenario was it's a sign of judgment. Your family line is done. It's doomed. And so Egypt recognized the judgment on the firstborn was a judgment on the entire nation. It was a declaration that Egypt, as a nation, your time, your days are numbered. You, you may not continue. And then finally, the death of the firstborn really was the ultimate blow in the Lord's judgment on the gods of Egypt. As the Lord says in Exodus 12, 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. In executing judgment on Egypt, God was judging their gods. And what good is a God if, he, if that God cannot protect you from death? In bringing death to the firstborn sons, God was showing Egypt, hey, your gods, they're empty, they're powerless, they're nothing, they're non-existence. And you following those gods only leads one place, judgment and death. And so, just as he said he would, God executes his judgment on Egypt. As we read in 12, verses 29 through 30. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock, 
During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house when someone, without someone dead. In the dark and stillness of the night, God strikes down the firstborn from the most powerful man down to the lowliest, down to the livestock. And Egypt, for all its power, all its military mights, all its wisdom, all its economic strength, all its wise men and sorcerers, all its multitude of gods, nothing they could do to stop it. Nothing that they could do to escape the judgment of the Lord. They were powerless in the face of judgment. And so here we are, brought into the tension. What do you, what do we do with God's judgment here? It should sober us. It should humble us in many ways. But what do you do with this topic of judgment? It is a God who wouldn't judge worthy of your worship like, consider, is a God who would not judge and bring justice to evil worthy of our hope? Like, what does that say about a God who looks at evil and would just say, well, I'm loving. I'm merciful. I know, but I just want you to know I'm loving and merciful. That a God that won't ever acknowledge evil and suffering, won't acknowledge oppression and injustice, is that God worthy of our worship? Is that God worthy of our hope? The tension of God's judgment and justice for forces us to ask the question, what kind of God do we follow? What kind of God do we believe in? What kind of God do we hope exists? Especially, especially, and I know, I know, knowing the stories, those of you who are facing evil, who are facing oppression and injustice, those of you that it's not just some abstract thing on the social media and on TV, but is actually in your life, that has come into your home and made its residence and you are facing the pain of oppression and injustice and evil, what kind of God are you following? What kind of God are you putting your hope in? Is the God that you follow able to deal with that evil and that suffering and that injustice? Is the God that you follow good enough, powerful enough, strong enough? Are you willing to live with the tension of that to worship a God who is or are in attempts to try to relieve that tension, you're making a God who is less than, less than holy, less than good, less than powerful, less than faithful. Friends, a God who's less than is not worthy of our worship. A God who's less than powerful, less than good, less than faithful, he's not worth your time. And here's what else. The Lord, the Lord's not less than. The Lord is not less than. The Lord is the sovereign, glorious, good, powerful, righteous, holy God who is faithful and just, who is big enough and powerful enough to deal with evil, and is also faithful to save. God is not indifferent. The Lord is not indifferent to the suffering and the, uh, uh, the injustice and the oppression in our world. The Lord 
He's a good creator. He, he's the creator that cares that sin and evil have corrupted his good creation. And so the Lord does judge. The Lord does judge sin and evil. But it's not just that he judges. Through judgment, he brings redemption. Through judgment, God sets his people free. Judged by the Lord, what does Pharaoh do? Finally, he relents. He finally lets the people of God go. Devastated by the death of his own firstborn and the death throughout Egypt, he summons Moses and Aaron, and this is what he says. Get out immediately. Like, like from tightening the grip of slavery, from being hard-hearted and refusing, now he's saying, get out of here. He's demanding that they go. Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take everything. Take your flocks and your herds as you asked and leave. And then what he, he leaves with this. And bless me. <laughs> like Pharaoh goes from a hard-hearted, stubborn, mocking, who's the Lord? I've never heard of the Lord. To now asking Moses to bless him in the name of the Lord. Remember way back in chapter 5. Moses asked, the, or Pharaoh asked the question, who is the Lord? He knows now. Now he wants the blessing of the Lord. God brought judgment. He dealt with the evil of Egypt. And through that judgment, he brings the redemption of his people. Now, let's be careful and not make the mistake in the other direction. It is good for us to lean into the truth that God judges evil because that is a God worthy of our worship. That is a God big and powerful. But let's not swing the other way and self-righteously start throwing the judgment of God in people's faces. Walking around as if we think we are just automatically out from underneath that judgment. Boy, if I declare the judgment of God and I'm good enough and I'm not as bad as those other people, then I'm, I'm okay. I escape the judgment of God. Wrong. Friends, for us to automatically assume we escape the judgment of God is a vastly ignorant mistake to make as if it's based on your performance. Look, Israel did not escape the judgment of God because they were less bad than Egypt. It had nothing to do with their performance. Yes, God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. As Moses tells Pharaoh, while the firstborn in Egypt will be killed, here's what's going to happen. Against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl. While death is being brought down on the firstborn, Israel, you're not even going to get looked sideways by a, a stray dog. That's how much favor I'm going to show. And so that Egypt may know and Israel may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So God is going to save. God is going to make a distinction. However, unlike the previous nine plagues where Israel had to do nothing, this time things are different. This time they are instructed to act, take steps of faith to escape this judgment. They're instructed to take an unblemished lamb or goats and they're to kill the animal and put its blood on the doorposts of their homes. And here is what the Lord tells Israel. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What distinguished Israel from Egypt? Blood on the door. What allowed Israel to escape the judgment of death? 
blood on the door. Because make no mistake, this too was judgment. Israel didn't just escape judgment whole scale with nothing, no, no cost. No, death for sin still took place to redeem Israel. The lamb took their judgment. The lamb took the judgment Israel deserved. The lamb stood in their, their place. The blood of that lamb paid the cost of their judgment so they could be redeemed. The blood of the Passover lamb showed Israel that through judgment, God redeems his people. And so the question is why? Why, why did this lamb need to be sacrificed? Well, because as scripture declares to us and as human experience shows us, ain't none of us righteous. Not a single one of us are righteous. We are all guilty. Israel was no less guilty than Egypt. Israel had the same sin, the same rebellion in their hearts, the same tendency to chase after false gods. What's the proof? Read the rest of Exodus. Israel, they were idolaters. They doubted the Lord. They chased after other gods. They didn't believe in God. They were sinful and rebellious just as Egypt was. They did not escape judgment because of their goodness, because of their religious faithfulness. No, they escaped judgment because God provided a substitute. God provided a lamb, and by the blood of that lamb being shed, God brought redemption. The blood of judgment is the blood of redemption. And it was for Israel to, by faith, trust in the provision God provided. By faith, Israel was to trust in that sacrifice of that lamb. By faith, they put the blood on the doorposts that marked them as the people of God, and they trusted in that blood, trusting in the grace of God believing that through the judgment that was poured out on that lamb, Israel would be redeemed. It's through judgment that God brings redemption. These things are not competing with one another. These things are not contradictory. No, in God, they stand together as two displays of his glory. And so in the Passover, we see that God rescues his people from the affliction of evil through judgment, and God rescues his people from their sin through judgment. And look, the Passover stood as the defining moment in Israel's history, as we're going to see next week. It changed their calendar. It changed their entire identity. It was a central part of their worship and how they understood who they were. It was from this moment of redemption that the rest of their history was going to be written significance, history-changing event. However, as significant as this was, as meaningful as this was, as a powerful display of God's judgment and redemption as this was, mere shadow. Mere shadow. The Passover points to something even greater, friends. To a greater display of God's redemption through judgment. The blood of the Passover lambs that had to be spilled year after year after year, pointing to the blood of the great Passover lamb whose blood was shed once for all. The shadow of the Passover, as great as that shadow is, as big as that shadow is, merely points us to the light that is Jesus Christ. Something greater than the Passover has come, church. 
Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes it explicitly clear when he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who stepped into this world and for the glory of his Father and for the good of his people, willingly laid down his life, laid down his life to die on a cruel Roman cross and spill his blood that you and I could be redeemed. Jesus Christ, the perfect and spotless, without sin, perfectly righteous lamb. He is the unblemished lamb that stood in our place. By his death, we are saved. Through the, his blood on the door of our hearts, so to speak, we are washed clean of our sin and our shame. It's not our good works. It's not our religious performance. It's not because we're less bad than those bad people over there. No, it's because God judged Jesus in our place that we experience redemption. And it's not only that, friends. It's not only that. On the cross, Jesus defeated every evil ruler, power, and authority. Evil took Jesus's, or gave it best shot to Jesus. But on the cross, as Colossians 2 says, he put it to open shame showed it as powerless, could not stop his, his plan of redemption. On the cross, Jesus judged evil and defeated it. And so the good news of the gospel is this. In Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. In Christ, God is going to renew and restore all things. And if you want to get in on that blessing, it's not your performance. It's not your religious good works. It's, it's not because you're a good, hardworking, honest person. No, friends, the reality of it is none of us are righteous. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. But through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, when you take hold of that promise by faith, you experience salvation, redemption, transformation, freedom from the guilt of sin, forgiveness from the guilt of sin, and freedom from sin's power and shame with the hope that one day Jesus is going to come back and renew and restore all things, that includes you. That's our hope of the gospel. That's the power of God bringing redemption through judgment. God is going to deal with evil. He has dealt with evil. He has brought redemption and he's going to bring redemption. And so church, in the Passover, and even more so in Christ, we see that through, redemption, through judgment, God brings redemption. Friends, if we minimize God's judgment and justice, we minimize the cross. And if we minimize the grace of God, we minimize the cross. Let's not be so spiritually shallow. God is a God who is big enough, powerful enough, good enough, holy and righteous to deal with evil. And he is faithful and he is loving and he is merciful and he is gracious to save a God worthy of our worship. And so in light of that, let me just speak to you for a moment. If you do not profess faith in Christ, here's what the Passover and here's what the gospel of Jesus Christ would tell you. God is holy. He does not take sin lightly. He will judge sin because sin has corrupted his good world. He's going to deal with it. And the stark reality is, is you are part of the problem. We are all part of the problem. 
And so if you have not put your faith in Christ, if you haven't experienced being washed clean by the blood of the lamb, you stand under judgments, God's righteous judgments. And no amount of good works, religious jumping through hoops, no matter success, wealth, status, you name it, can save you from that judgment. You can chase after the false gods, whether they be of other religions or the false gods of pleasure and comfort and status and identity, they will not save you. Only the blood of Jesus, only by the sacrifice of Jesus, the provision of Jesus, can you be saved. But here's the good news for you. God is gracious and merciful. He doesn't turn any away who come to him and cry out to him to be saved. And so even this morning, I would encourage you, turn from your sin. Turn from empty idols and empty gods and turn to Christ who saves and redeems and restores and gives you life for those who do profess faith in Christ. Here's what 1 Corinthians 5 goes on to tell us. In light of the fact that Christ, our Passover land, has been sacrificed and we have been washed clean by his blood, we have new life in him, we have the hope of him coming back to renew and restore all things. In light of that, walk in godliness. Walk in holiness. Like our God is worthy of worship. He's righteous, he's good, he's just, he's holy. If that is who our God is, what are we doing messing around with sin? What are we doing chasing after false idols that we think are going to satisfy? What are we running after false and less than hopes? Oh, if you are in Christ, friends, you have a God worthy of your worship. Worship him. Follow him. Be obedient to him. And as you do that, church, let's declare a gospel worthy of people making people's hearts sing. Worthy of inviting people in to worship a God who is that good, that holy, that just, that faithful, that merciful, that that loving. Let's declare the fullness of who our God is, the power of the gospel. Let's not fall on one side or the other making these twin errors. No, let's proclaim the true gospel. That's what saves. That's what's going to make people's hearts sing and jump for joy. Not a less than God, the one true God, the Lord. Let's proclaim him. Let's live for him. And as we do that, let's walk in this confidence. Friends, yes, the world is full of evil and it is broken and it is hard and there is suffering. But our confidence is that Jesus is coming back. Jesus has defeated evil and he will defeat evil. He is going to judge and redeem and remove it all. And so until that day comes, We need not fall into the sinful anger. Yeah, we can be angry that sin takes place. We should be. But let's not be the the angry people because we're, we're angry because we can't control the world. Rather, let us cry out. Let us lament. Let us mourn. Let us say, come Lord Jesus. Finish what you began. Friends, we have an incredible hope. Incredible hope for what God has done and what he will do. What a day that will be when Christ returns. Amen? It's the hope that the Passover points us to by pointing us to Christ. And so in light of all that we have in Jesus, friends, in light of all that God has done and is doing, and all the ways that he has forgiven you and set you free, and the ways that he continues to renew you, let's be a people who worship and walk in faith and obedience. Amen? Let's pray.